This podcast is offered by San Francisco Zen Center on the web at sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Recently, there's been this um, critique of, I think, partly accurate critique, let's put it that way, of Western Buddhism in general, and in in particular, maybe, well, actually, specifically, what's called Western convert Buddhism, um, you know, which San Francisco Zen Center is clearly an example, right? Um, Not that, not that every, not that every member and practitioner at San Francisco Zen Center is a convert Buddhist, but a lot of them are. <laughs> um, and the critique kind of goes like this. It's due to people like Robert Scharf and Donald Lopez and um, Anne Gleg, Gleg, I think is how you pronounce her name, who um, actually came and gave a talk um, fairly recently, well, last year or something like that, at uh, at Zen Center, um, it kind of goes like this. In in Asia, so Japan, Southeast Asia, um, the kind of um, some ways the heart of um, Asian Buddhism, particularly in, you know, Burma, Thailand, um, and so on, the heart of of Asian Theravadan Buddhism, and also in Japan, which was, um, you know, there's a lot of Zen going on in Japan, maybe also in Korea. contact with the West, and in the case of Burma, colonial occupation um, by Western powers produced a kind of crisis in Buddhism practice and thinking um, in Asia. And some people, not everybody, but some people um, got this idea that that Buddhism and Buddhist practice needed to be modernized so that they were compatible with Western ideas and, and interestingly with science, right? Um, With uh, materialist scientific thinking. Um, And so that happened and there's pretty good evidence for that. if you look at the literature, um, in in the Japanese case, you don't have to go much further than than uh, DT Suzuki to find someone who was passionately interested in kind of rationalizing um, some sort of confluence between uh, Zen thinking and Western thinking, and and in particular. Western philosophical thinking. So 
Um, I think I think that part of the critique is accurate, and um, the 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 other part of the critique, uh, which is that that this this produced a kind of deprecation both in in the eyes of these Asian teachers and and in Western Buddhism when some of those teachers actually landed in the West or started teaching Western students um, of other aspects of Buddhism, you know, Zen and Theravadan Buddhism and other Buddhist sects as well um, that were crucial. Um, so, and that includes kind of um, uh, devotional practice, um, uh, you know, in particular rituals, um, and also um, related to that, this kind of community practice, right? The 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 critique is that that when Buddhism landed in the West, it was primarily concerned with individual um, effort and attainment through the use of techniques that it was at least possible to argue were, were kind of framed as self-improvement techniques, right? Um, and so that's the critique. And like I said, I think it's partial, partially accurate. And, you know, a couple of reasons for my thinking that it's partially accurate is that I grew up kind of in the, I was a kid in the middle of a, of a kind of cultural ferment in the, in San Francisco and in the Bay Area, um, where that exactly had to do with, with the introduction of, of um, Buddhism to the West or Zen in particular to the West. And I've, I think I've talked about this before, but um, you know, my, you know, we hung out with Alan Watts and Alan Watts um, famously said when asked to define um, Buddhism and address whether it was a religion or not said, oh, well, you know, it's a, it's a way of liberation, right? Which I have to say is true as far as it goes, uh, but um, it, it tends to put the emphasis, if you, if you say, if you say to somebody, hey, way of liberation, um, if you, you know, there's a lot of people where if you say, and many of them are, were in California at the time, if you say that to them, they'll go, oh, I'm going to go get liberated now. Um, and, and it sort of underscores that emphasis on, um, on individual practice, on attainment of liberation, whatever that means. And it's not at all clear that um, people sitting in the audience when uh, Alan Watts said that really had a clue what that meant, actually. Um, I think they all had an idea and were kind of jazzed about it, but not, I mean, they may not have 
for the most part had a clue about it. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, even going further back than that, um, if you if you really dig into the classical literature and you dig into to Dogen, um, there's a lot of emphasis on individual practice and liberation in, in the literature. Right? Um, and and interesting, it's interestingly also some deprecation of um, of of devotional practice, not necessarily, not definitely not of community, but certainly of devotional practice, right? Um, you know, you read the Mumon Khan, and right there in the in the commentaries on the first Khan, the you know the famous Jojo's dog, um, Mumon says something like, "Hey." You could be just like Mumon. You could walk along, you could see through Mumon's eyes. You could walk along with the with the ancestral teachers together. Uh, and wouldn't that be great? And if you want to do that, all you have to do is break down this barrier. And here's how you do it. You um, you spend day and night banging your head against Mu and you um, you practice like you're trying to swallow a red hot iron ball. Um, uh, that's pretty aspirational and also um, pretty um, emphatically about the merit and virtue of, of difficult individual practice, right? Um, and and in Dogen, this, you know, like in the Fukanza Zengi and some of his early writings, he's also pretty, he's pretty um, dismissive of, of devotional practice and study, um, at least, right? He says, you know, it, how are you going to wake up if you're just sitting around croaking like a bunch of frogs or chanting the name of Buddha? Um, and so on. You need to sit zazen, and you need to um, um, drop off body and mind. Um, so, you know, my sense is that in that in those passages and in the in the the spirit of those writers, there was a there was a similar effort not you know, arising for the same reasons, but to kind of focus people on on individual practice and and attainment in a way that the obviously the writers at the time thought um, was beneficial, right? And and it goes, and like I said, it goes way back, right? But um, if you look at the Zen that we inherited from Suzuki Roshi, it's pretty clear that it may be a way of liberation, but it's also a way of devotion. Um, I, you know, like, so let's start with how you become a, um, how you become a Buddhist. You take the precepts, but before you can take the precepts, you have to make some vows and, and, and take the refuges. And 
Um, if you look at the Bodhisattva vows, I mean, th this has been discussed a lot in the last, during the last practice period. Um, you're basically looking at some propositions. I'm gonna save all beings, even though there's infinitely many of them. Um, I'm gonna, um, uh, there's, you know, the opportunities, um, you know, for self-delusion and delusion in general are, are endless and frequently occurring. <laughs> And, um, you know, uh, there's more Dharma gates available than anyone can measure or, or attend to, and I'm gonna enter them, yeah. And the, the Buddha's way is, well, it's, we, um, translators is unsurpassable it would be easy to translate that as unattainable <laughs> and and i vow to attain it um so so what can you do in a in a in the face of that um but let go of you know agency and sort of instrumentality and just execute the vow um, or, you know, quit. But um, if you don't quit, you're really, your choices are, are kind of limited in that regard. Um, you're not gonna save infinitely many beings. And um, the, the task of even saving one being is infinitely long. Um, so, uh, so just to, live out the vow like Jizo Bodhisattva um, is fundamentally an act of devotion um, and nothing more or less. And similarly with the refuges, you know, it's interesting when you, we chant the refuges, um, you know, uh, we, we chant the refuges and then we say these additional things. Um, you know, immersing body and mind deeply in the way, awakening true mind. There's this. There might be this little promise there that if we if we take refuge, we'll we'll awaken true mind. And maybe that sounds a little bit like um, a reward or something like that. But but actually, the refuges only work if you drop all that, and if you just throw yourself in completely without reservation and without condition into the refuges, which again, it's an act of devotion. And it's a, um, it's a um, connection to um, the, to the, in the broadest sense, to the, to the activity of Buddhism and Buddhists um, since the, you know, since the beginning and back before the beginning. Um, and then if you look at the activities that, you know, as, as long as we're on the subject of activity that, that we do in 
at city center when we can all be there. Uh, they're pretty much the whole, the full range of, of activities that, that not just in Buddhism, but in religions all the world, all over the world are, are, are designated as devotional. Um, the, um, you know, praising and saying the names of um, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Yeah, that's devotional. Um, uh, chanting selected texts in unison or solo. Yeah, um, every religion has um, has that kind of devotional practice pretty much. Well, not every, but lots of them. Um, and and it, and the list goes on. There's 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 orioki, right? Which it's a it's a highly ritualized devotional practice. The just the whole all the rituals around bowing, and then even more interestingly, the monastic forms like the you know the the main one that comes always comes to mind when I, when I talk about this. It's the one where you is how you step over a threshold, right? Um, it's often described and explained as a um, as a mindfulness practice, you know, as a way of making yourself more mindful, sort of in the spirit of. Um, you know, doing this thing, awakening true mind, right? But, but actually, it's not really that. I mean, it, it is that, but it's it goes way beyond that. Um, it's when you when you do it without reservation and without condition or or even um, you know calculation. It's kind of like you're you're thanking the building for holding up the door, you know, beam over your head. Basically, it's it's uh, again, it feels devotional. It doesn't so much feel like um, doesn't so much feel like instrumental. Um, Mm -hmm. So, why is this a good thing? Um, and in particular, how does it relate to um, the the kind of, you know, you can't, well, again, nobody would, nobody would do any of this stuff if they didn't think it was going to somehow improve their life. Um, that, that, you know, people have many motivations for, joining a monastery or taking on Buddhist practice, but they're, they're um, among the main ones are that they feel 
suffering in their lives and they want to feel relief and they've been they've been told i i, I was told that um that Zen would offer me relief from suffering, and I really wanted it. And so, at some point in my life, I just decided to um, come here and start sitting. Um, hmm. But there is this when you when you read around in the in the dictionary about the meanings, various meanings of devotion and devotional practice and devotional practice in particular in Buddhism and so on and so forth, um, you start to see this, this kind of interesting um, interplay between the notion of devotional practice and then practice or, you know, uh, that that's more like intercessional or um, or instrumental or or that's, that's, that constitutes petitioning or an an, uh, an effort to gain merit, right? Um, and that goes to this this pretty subtle thing about um, about Zen practice and in, in particular about Zazen, right? Like um, it's pretty easy to see that if you are, let's say, you know, let's say you've taken on the practice. I, I know a guy who uh, has, who's taken on a practice of, um, of doing a whole bunch of bows and, and, and a whole bunch of chanting in Pali as, as part of his morning routine. Um, and I would say that for the most part, he's just doing it because he does it. But, but obviously there's this way in which it, um, it kind of settles his mind and, and it has this, it has a little bit of a, of an instrumental quality too, which in which in some ways is okay, right? That's good, but but remember what Suzuki Roshi says about um, about sitting zazen, right? That that the primary request is to sit without gaining idea, and and why is that the primary request? Well, the reason that's the primary request is that fundamentally Zazen is impossible. Okay. I, I hate to break this to you in, in the, uh, what is it, the 25th minute of this talk, which I'm hoping will, will only last about five more minutes and then we'll, we, can talk, we can have some Q and A, but, um, but Zazen is impossible. Um, and, and, and it's impossible in a in a very particular way, but but um, but the the you know the classic kind of uh, paradox in it is that how do you square what essentially constitutes spiritual ambition, like 
you know, uh, Mumon saying, hey, look, you can be like Jiao Jiao. All you got to do is, is, you know, is swallow this red hot iron ball, right? How do you square that with, with sit without gaining idea, um, which in the end is the only way you can let go enough to, to experience the kind of um, practice that gets into your mind and body and, and affords the ability to drop off body and mind and so on. Right. Um, more subtly, um, what you're faced with in, in Zazen is a, is a process, the, the process, the sort of default process of mind, uh, um, which has a, everyone, everyone's is different, but they, as far as I can tell from talking to a lot of people, you know, all the ones I've discussed with, with people have, have a similar flavor. Um, and that flavor is this, they're a, they're a mix. This is a little bit like what Paul was saying in his talk on Saturday. They're a mix of broad, you know, unloaded, spacious, attention and um, highly focused self-constructing agenda executing uh, what we normally think of as conventional thought right um, and there's a couple of other details that might be worth um, worth discussing there too the broad the mode of broad receptive uh, attention can give way to focus attention and and then take it back easily and seamlessly you can s sample this anytime you're you're sitting and watching the sensations arise into perception and if they're if they're not particularly loaded with, with you know, sort of a valence or emotional content, they they arise a little bit of, um, you know, sort of mental activity accrues around them, and then they just drop. They're like they're like flowers that bloom for a second, right? Um, and you can you can watch them pop up all over your sensorium. Uh, in your knee, when your knee twinges slightly, in, uh, in in your auditory system, when you hear a sound outside, um, et cetera, all that, right? Um, also, when you're when you when you're in that mode and you focus on a particular physical activity, you know, the, the unquestionably in San Francisco Zen Center, the most famous one is chopping vegetables, right? Um, it's possible to be utterly focused on activity, that activity in a way that that um, that's that has the same quality as that receptive attention, but but also has a focus, right? And then it lets go. Right? Um, that 
for for reasons that you know I don't think anybody really understands. But that receptive attention also has a um, cyclical giving, you know, uh, uh, back and forth sort of ping pong with our mode of self-construction and rumination, right? Um, and it, it, it happens, that back and forth happens so regularly that, that people that do studies in cognitive psychology and so on and so forth can, can time it. They're like, yeah, you know, usually a half a minute or so at, at the outside sort of on the average, right? Um, that process is not under your control. It's under no one's control. I mean, you can, you can use um, specific concentration exercises to, um, to, to, to drive it under your control in the sense that you can, you can use a concentration exercise as a, um, kind of like you know chopping vegetables with your whole body right um, in order to to hold off the the you know the passing back to your attention of um, you know from from the um, uh, your mode of ruminating and self-construction but you but the uh, the effort and um, and kind of, you know, the effort that's required for that is really a form of self-assertion, right? And it's not Zazen, right? It, um, Dogen explicitly in the Fukanza Zangi and lots of other places says that's not Zazen, right? It's not Shikantaza. It's not total absorption and upright sitting. It's, it's, it's um, mental gymnastics, right? Um, so that's the sense in which Zazen is impossible. Um, and, and the sense in which it's just to say, to say, I'm gonna sit Zazen is like saying beings are numberless, I vow to save them, right? Or delusions, it's, it's in fact, it's exactly like, <laughs> saying delusions are inexhaustible i vow to end them <laughs> actually that's that's what it means to say i'm going to sit i'm going to sit zazen now um so so in some ways in exactly the way that that the bodhisattva vows are acts of devotion the just sitting down the best way to treat a period of zazen is as an act of devotion you just sit down you, you don't worry about being good at it. You don't worry about, about getting it, whatever that means. You just let, let the, the, the mind, the activity of mind play out. And if you, if you need to extend, to expend a little effort um, to, for example, um, you know, bring extra focus, a little bit of extra focus in um, during some part of the period of Zazen. The, the intention is that that effort tails out to zero as, as your mind settles. So that in the end, you're not making any effort. And 
the interesting thing that happens then is that it actually doesn't matter if you're thinking or not. Um, it's so when you when Duggan says I forget who he's quoting, but um, he's quoting a Tang Dynasty teacher who said um, I, don't know, I wish I remembered. Anyway. Um, you know, think about not thinking. How do you think about not thinking? Well, non-thinking actually. Somebody asked him, he said, what are you doing there? And he goes, I'm thinking about not thinking. And, and the guy says, well, how do you do that? And he says, well, non-thinking, right? It's, it's a form of non-thinking. Um, it's not that thinking is absent, it's that it's not centered. It's, it has a, um, It has a, a radically different place in the in the whole frame that it, that presents itself when you're sitting, um, and and in the in that place, the um, the again the emotion that arises. Um, is the is the emotion that's most closely associated with devotional activity, which is gratitude. Right? Um, that's the that's the the fundamental feeling tone of that of that space of unloaded attention. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma Talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, please visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we all fully enjoy the Dharma.